Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Legacy Through Motherhood podcast where we talk about small, seemingly insignificant changes or conversations we can do or have consistently as mothers and women to ultimately create generational change. Also, you guys, if you are someone who comes back to this podcast time after time because you love the conversation and the message, can you take a second to just scroll down and rate this podcast? And if you have time to leave a review, reviews move, I mean, mountains in the podcast world. That helps us reach more and more women and moms who need this encouragement. And it would mean so much to me if you would just take a couple seconds to do that. Okay, so... I am super excited to have Rachel Bailey back on the podcast today to talk about a super important conversation that we really need to have as moms. And I actually explained some of how I kind of got the desire to record this conversation and why Rachel was a perfect fit after I hit record. So I'm not going to repeat it here in the intro, but Rachel is actually the first guest that I've had back on the podcast for the second time. In almost 80 episodes, you guys, big deal. (laughs) Her first episode is also straight fire on this podcast. We talk about the difference between discipline and punishment, and that is actually episode 41. So if you want to kind of double dip today on some parenting tools and advice, feel free to binge those episodes. Okay, so let's jump in. Here is my guest today and incredible parenting expert, Rachel Bailey. All right, Rachel, welcome back to the Legacy Through Motherhood podcast. You are actually our my first guest to come back for a second time. Oh, well, I'm very flattered. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> I'm really excited about this conversation. We were just talking before we hit record. And really quickly, just for everybody who's listening, so I am reading, and I've actually mentioned it in a couple of the previous episodes, I have been reading Whole Brain Child with my husband. And there, it, there a topic was brought up about how we typically – will distract our kids when they feel upset. You know, like if you have little ones, like if they freaking drop a, you know, ice cream cone on the sidewalk or if they let go of a balloon or, you know, whatever it might be, we tend to like distract them like, oh, let's go watch Blue's Clues or let's go do this or whatever else. And I remember we were sitting there listening to this actually on their way to vacation and I'm like, I paused it. I'm like, hold on a second. This is actually really deep. (laughs) I'm like, I feel like I do that. Like, I feel like I will, you know, my kids will be crying, fall down, scrape a knee. I remember specifically in Target, um, my two-year-old at the time, like falling down, scraping his knee, like blood everywhere, like bad scrape. And I had a Starbucks coffee, like a Frappuccino. And I'm like, here, take a drink of this, (laughs) which is so bad. But it was a distraction, right, from like what was happening. And I was in a public place anyways. um, But then I'm like, man, I deal with finances a lot and so many people avoid dealing with their finances. And I, I'm like, there has to be a correlation here. There has to be a correlation between, you know, us being taught to kind of avoid or distract from like painful experiences as a child and turning that into like adults, we tend to distract and avoid for like, you know, hard things. So I messaged Rachel (laughs) Like, can you talk about this? Because I think this is such a such an important topic. So can you really quickly, in case anyone has not listened to the episode you were on previously, can you just kind of introduce yourself, what you do, and then we'll hop into it? Yes. So I am uh, a mom, first of all. That's the most important thing to me. I, I have two kids myself. And um, I am what I call a parenting specialist, which is sort of like a parent coach, but I'm going to be very honest that I don't, coaches tend to pull answers out of parents 
I actually do more consulting and giving advice. So that's why I call myself a specialist versus a coach. I have a background in clinical psychology and actually started working with children and adolescents in the beginning of my career, but then worked started working with parents. It's been about 11 years now, but I intentionally shifted to working with parents, not only very honestly, because they were asking me for really practical tools, but also for the exact reason we're going to talk about in this episode, which was that, you know, I was working with kids and teens and we were making a lot of progress. And then kids and teens would go back home and parents would do things like distracting (laughs) from their emotions that would so unintentionally you know, bring the kids and teens back. And and so I really wanted to start working with parents for almost the exact reason that we're going to talk about. So I've been working with parents for about 11 years now. And my goal is really to improve behavior, moods, and attitudes in the home, both kids and for, and parents as well. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Because, it, you know, like you're saying, we all have the best intentions, yes. literally from every mother across the globe. Like we all just try to do the best we can. However, number one, we don't know what we don't know. But number two, we typically, I don't even know what the percentage is. I'm going to say 80%. (laughs) Like we just regurgitate things. You know, there's all kinds of funny memes out there where you like, you know, oh, I sound like my mom now, or I'm like saying the same thing my parents did. And I swore I would never do that. But the truth is, is that like, you know, that's all ingrained in us so much. And then when we become parents, we just kind of regurgitate what we hear. So it is with the best intentions, but oftentimes, especially on this topic of avoiding things or distracting our children when they're experiencing something hard can be really detrimental. So can you just um, talk about, I don't know, where do, where you see this, like just this parenting style of Uh, or that encourages like distraction and avoidance? Do you feel like it's because the generation before us really used that? Or is it just kind of like a human thing just in general? I would say it's both. First of all, just be aware that at a very primal level, we are wired to avoid pain. That's, you know, we're survival based. That's our number one goal as human beings. And so our brains and our, our detect whether we are safe based on something creating pain, like it assumes pain is bad. It could hurt us. It could kill us. We need to avoid it. So it's very primal, first of all. Um, Obviously, too, we are wired to protect our children. So if we see our children uncomfortable, it is, you know, the, the message to ourselves is, oh, we have to make that stop to make sure they're okay. So there's that part of it. But I do absolutely think, and I actually... Um, when I used to, before COVID, doing lots of in-person talks, I used to um, ask people, how many of you had parents who actually taught you how to feel your emotions in a healthy way? And you can imagine that not very many parents, not very many people in the audience had parents who taught them how to do this. Sure. So I would also argue that our parents' generation did not learn it from their parents because interestingly, two or three generations ago for most of us, those were depression era parents. And they were like, what are you talking about? You you hit your skin knee. I had to live without food for whatever, you know? So they were like, they had no sympathy whatsoever. They were just like, suck it up. And then that was passed down and passed down. And that's sort of where we are today, I would argue. Yes. And I, um, I'm i glad you brought that up because I it's, it's kind of a theme that's been um, going through different interviews that I have had that, yeah, the people um, who had parents or grandparents that were even in like the World War One, World War Two, that kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, there is this, and then there was, you know, nobody talks about mental health. There was a lot of alcoholism. There was a lot of, and that was a coping mechanism for, yes. you know, they never talked about like what they saw over, you know, either here or right. overseas or whatever. And so there was a lot of pushing things down. 
And so I think um, I think there's a lack of language almost around like how to help your kid up. Like, okay, yeah, you fell. Like, get up. <laughs> you really yeah. are fine. <laughs> it's not even bleeding, you know? And that's, I mean, obviously sometimes it's fine to say that. But what are some like ways that we can just start to be aware and kind of change the narrative when our kids are hurting? I mean, it can be something as small, like I just said, as a scraped knee, or obviously it gets bigger to them or, you know, seemingly bigger problems as they grow up, even though it's kind of all the big things. Yes, absolutely. So let me give you sort of a 30,000 foot view of my perspective on all of this, which is that um, when first, let me tell you what our goal is, and I'll tell you what it sounds like. The goal is that we have to let our children have their feelings. Feelings actually serve a purpose. And if we go to the science of it, feelings exist to help us understand what's going on both in our body and in our environment. So, you know, like we'll get a feeling if we're hungry. That's a feeling telling us we need to feed ourselves. We'll get a feeling if we detect something in our environment is, you know, dangerous. These feelings serve a purpose and they have to happen. And the body is actually built so that we can listen to these feelings, learn from them and take action. So they have to happen. And the body senses it as a problem if we stuff these feelings. So ultimately, I actually specialize in working with parents of children with big feelings, big emotions who are more sensitive. And what I always teach is that you want your children to have those feelings. You just don't want them to be controlled by those feelings. So the 30,000 foot view is, yes, we do need to let our our kids have them without distracting them. We also need to teach them how to cope with them so they're not taking these feelings and, you know, hitting people or becoming anxious or things like that. Now, let me just give you an example, a really practical example of what this looks like. If a child does fall and they skin their knee, we simply don't want to over or under identify with that. So we don't want to say, oh my gosh, you skinned your knee. Are you okay? But we also don't want to say, you're fine. The middle ground is simply to observe. Wow, you fell and you skinned your knee. Maybe that hurt. That's it. So you're acknowledging that they're having feelings, but you're also showing them that you're not sucked in by those feelings. Right. Does that make or sense? Like, yeah, like you're you're just not completely overwhelmed by them. <laughs> Correct. That's it. That's the key is to have the feelings without getting being controlled or overwhelmed by them. Yep. Mm. Yep. I love that. And it's so simple. Like that's and that's I know even before, you know, last week when we were talking about this when you were kind of just hinting at like some of these things. That's what I'm like I feel like it's a very simple switch. It's a very simple language switch. It's just again, you don't know what you don't know. Exactly <laughs> and so right. It is like, okay, I can I can literally say to my child that exact thing, you know, or whatever it might be. And so I think that's really powerful because it's so simple. It is. It's simple but not easy simply because of the the but what we were talking about earlier, the biology of we get sucked into emotions, like we we sense them as a problem, so we tend to want to solve them. And then also we learned that they're bad. Like a lot of us were literally sent away as kids, like go to the other room if you're going to have emotions or you're being too dramatic. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of what I would consider like threat in our mind about emotions. So even though it's simple, it's not easy because of all the baggage we carry around feeling. Hey guys, popping in here really quick to tell you about a free class that I am holding next week and I want you to be a part of it. So May 17th through 21st of 2021, I'm going to actually be teaching my brand new class, Money Mindset for Moms 101, learn how to break generational cycles every single day, Monday through Friday. And so there should be a time that works for you. And I actually had this class and did it live about a month ago, and there was over 100 women who signed up, so I decided to bring it back. And in this class, we talk about trauma 
financial and otherwise, and how it's passed down genetically between generations. You guys, this is super, super interesting. And then we talk about practical ways to talk about money to your kids and talk about money around your kids because they're always listening. And these are very specific examples. So you can kind of walk away and implement them right when the class is over. And then ultimately we talk about how to create a generational change that lasts and not not one that just dies the generation after we are gone, right? None of us wants to uh, put in the emotional labor and the physical labor or whatever it might be just to have it die after one generation. So the link to sign up to this class is in the show notes of this episode. It's also super easily available on all of my social media channels. So I am at Legacy Through Motherhood on Facebook and Instagram. And so if you go to any of those sites, you'll be able to find the link very easily there. But I want you in and I look forward to seeing you soon. Well, and I can even see like a kid, even with you like narrating certain things that are just happening. You know, they just seem, they just feel seen more than anything yeah. else. It's like, did you see that I just fell and hurt myself? You know, and a lot of times if you just like acknowledge it, then they almost pass over it really easily. Yeah. And one of the things that it talks about in this book that I'm reading, The Whole Brain Child, you know, a lot of times, again, with the best intentions as parents, right? Like you were saying, <laughs> it's primal to uh, avoid pain just in general. But at the same time, you know, it's, it was talking about how we typically want to distract or avoid our children um, through painful experiences because we don't want to like traumatize them. And mm-hmm. the example they gave was um, a, a kid getting in a car wreck and this kid kept bringing it back up. And, you know, as a parent, you might want to be like, oh my gosh, you're fine. Like everybody was fine. It's good. Like, let's go, you know, I don't know, watch a show, go get ice cream, go get dinner. Cause you feel bad almost, right? Like you feel bad because they keep bringing up this traumatic experience. Um, and what he was saying was actually, it's, it's not traumatic for them to continue going through it. It's it. I mean, they may be tra- tra- traumatized, but it's more the way that their brain is trying to like figure it out, right? Like they experienced it with their right brain, all these emotions and all of these, you know, whatever. And so her or the child or whatever that was in the car wreck talking through it time and time and time again is actually really healing. It's Mm -hmm. not re-traumatizing. So can you talk to that some? Yeah. And I just obviously have to put a little caveat here that I, you know, any situation is individual. And if someone believes they're, that they are traumatizing their children, they should really speak to a professional. So I just have to put a little disclaimer there. Sure. But g- generally, what needs to happen when someone has had these feelings and this danger is that they have to re-experience it almost in a safe environment. So what happens when we experience something difficult is that it, it gets encoded in, our, encoded in our brain. And then we start to t- sort of take lessons from it. A child may take a lesson from a car wreck that cars are dangerous, that, you know, everything associated with cars is bad. But what we need to learn is that cars aren't bad and we need to talk about it and actually re um, almost bring it back up in a safe environment. And then we start to associate this feeling that we had with a supportive adult that is there to help us. So we, we, it's almost like, um, almost like classical conditioning. Like we want to condition yeah. ourselves when we feel these feelings to start to realize there is safety involved. And very honestly, language is a way to start to um, 
take these feelings and bring, like you said, the left brain, because language lives in the left side of your brain, like bring in more of this logic language part to help balance out these big emotions and realize that there is safety associated with this emotion, not danger associated with this emotion. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'm also curious your thoughts on like the the ever rising presence of anxiety. Do you Uh feel like, this might be a loaded question, but I mean, first of all, million different sources that could come from and be be bred upon. So let's just, with that said, do you feel like also though that, you know, this, this, um, you know, pushing down our feelings, kind of avoiding the distracting, the, I don't know how to, you know, tough it up kind of generational narrative that is happening and being passed down. Do you feel like that is contributing some to the anxiety that we're seeing just rise in teens and adults and, you know, younger kids these days? 100%. Absolutely. You know, when I was, when I was in a clinical practice and I was seeing um, kids and teens, I basically knew that when someone had anxiety, they had a lot of stuff inside that they hadn't dealt with, that they didn't know how to cope with. What, what has happened is that there is a rise in pressure on, in, in some ways, you know, they have life so much easier, but in other ways, there's a lot more pressure on them. Um, and so they have more pressure and fewer coping skills. And so what happens is they they have all of these feelings. I call these feelings yuck. Anyone who has heard me speak before knows I talk about yuck. They have mm-hmm. all this yuck inside, all these d- uncomfortable feelings. And if they don't know how to cope with them, they sit inside. And I actually talk to parents that I work with that every time yuck is created, there's like a layer of yuck. And if we don't actually deal with that yuck, it starts to, the layers start to build up upon each other. And then they build this mountain of yuck. And a lot of the time we have such a big mountain of yuck that we need to start to numb it and cope with it in some unhealthy way, like alcohol, like you were talking about before, like alcohol or even, you know, tuning out to Netflix all the time or eating sugar, or it's like, we have to numb this big mountain of yuck we have inside because we haven't processed it. And I think that's a big contributor to more anxiety these days for sure. Absolutely. And there, I was just talking in one of the classes that I just taught about how you know, avoiding dealing with your finances can be a trauma response to something, right? Absolutely. Or like a a way to um, not have to deal with like you just the, you know, your health, your whatever it might be. And I feel like coping skills, I don't, I feel like it's such a buzzword because yeah. I think everybody, like if you think like but okay, let me back up. I think that coping skills are talked about some. However, I think that negative coping skills like the sex, drugs, rock and roll, you know, Netflix, yes. like all that kind of stuff. Like we all, I think, know, like I can tell you how I just distract myself when I'm just overwhelmed, you know, totally. like with our thing. But I don't think positive coping skills are talked about enough because there's just and then, you know, you have to also practice them. Like <laughs> you can't just list yeah. them. And so what, um, so as far as, let's, okay. So as, as a parent, let's do it from this perspective, as a parent teaching your kids, you know, to go through something hard, if they're going through something hard, what are some like really maybe simple coping skills do you have them teach their children or walk through their children with? I'm going to be very honest that the first thing I actually do when I'm teaching coping skills, which is basically what I do every day, all day, is it's all, it's all about sort of dealing with the discomfort. Um, first step is actually a parent being able to handle their child's discomfort first before you try to teach a child for a number of reasons. Um, I'll give you just two brief reasons. Number one, no matter how good your child's skills are, your child senses you 
And if you are uncomfortable with their emotions, that will override their skills. So the first step in emotional regulation, I actually teach parents to become comfortable with their children's emotions because children need to learn. See, if parents can't even handle children's emotions, then how the heck are children supposed to be able to handle their own emotions? Right. So, um, you know, it's really important for us to start there. Um, the, the other reason that it's important to start with parents is because they need to model what this looks like very honestly. Um, but then what we do is, well, actually, let me tell you how parents handle it. And that will actually lead to what I teach that children can do. So very important. If you want to start to teach your children coping skills and you want to become comfortable with it, you want to understand what I call the yuck curve. So if you just imagine a rainbow shaped curve, what usually happens when any human being is in yuck and yuck again, is a term I used to describe anything uncomfortable. So it could be that they're hungry or tired or they just, like you said, let go of a balloon or they're a teenager and you told them they can't have their phone, whatever uncomfortable they're feeling, yuck gets bigger and bigger and then it reaches a peak and it comes down. So you've just told your child they can't go to their friend's house because they didn't finish their homework. They get more and more frustrated. Eventually it reaches a peak and it comes down. Now what's happening when they're on that curve is what I call yuck behavior. That's where kids are, you know, being disrespectful, being defiant, being aggressive, or they're saying, nobody likes me. Um, you never let me do anything. Those are all symptoms of yuck. What we have to understand is that children naturally go through a yuck curve. And if we just let them do what I call traveling the curve, then things will be better. They will actually process all of these feelings and these feelings, instead of sitting inside of them and creating this mountain of yuck, the feelings will actually be processed and go away. And so what we have to become comfortable with is while they're on that yuck curve, we have to not get sucked in. We have to really regulate ourselves and realize, you know what? This is just yuck. It's not a threat. It's not this horrible thing. I can handle this. I can show my child that this is handleable. So that's what parents need to do. Now, it becomes very much more simple about what kids need to do. They need to recognize their own yuck, and they simply need to find healthy ways of dealing with that feeling when they are in yuck. So instead of being disrespectful to their parents, they have to you know, come up with, again, like you said, coping skills. So coping skills depend on a child. I actually break coping skills down by temperament. Some children need to physically move their bodies. So they have a lot of energy inside because they're frustrated or they're annoyed or they're angry or whatever it is. And they actually need to get this energy out by moving their bodies. And while they're traveling the curve, they need to be, you know, maybe walking to the furthest wall and back 10 times. Some kids need more cognitive strategies. Cognitive strategies may be where they're talking to themselves and calming themselves down through self-talk. Or it may be a cognitive strategy that they are actually like doing a math problem in their head or I, one of the ones I use is I go through the alphabet skipping a letter. So I'll go like A, C, E, F, G. Like that's a cognitive strategy that can actually calm someone down. Some kids need more creative strategies or sensory strategies. But all of that is to say that while we're traveling the curve, normally we have those unhealthy coping mechanisms you mentioned. What we want to teach kids is healthier ones while they're waiting to travel that curve so they don't do things that they regret. So I know that was a really long answer, but I hope it gave you what you were looking for. No, that was perfect. And I think it's important too to talk about when to teach kids about the different types of coping skills. Because obviously when they're like at the peak of yuck, <laughs> you telling them to like count to 10, you know what I mean? Probably, unless you've had this conversation before. I know with my with one of my kids, he 
it happens very rarely, but sometimes, but sometimes he like, I, I call it, he just like goes into Hulk mode. Like he's just yeah. one of my sweetest kids, but like literally maybe twice a year, he goes into this like rage and I'm like, where is this coming from? But after the first like time that it happened, we really t- sat down. Um, cause it took him, I mean, a good 45 minutes to be, I mean, he was like scratching his own face, like mm-hmm. so upset. Um, you just could not like regulate himself at all. And so afterwards we talked about different ways that he can, you know, regulate himself or different coping skills or different things he can ask me for or do himself or, you know, whatever else. And so then when it happened again, and when I kind of saw it rising, I was able to be like, okay, like I knew it was coming. I just, you know, you know, your babies. And I'm like, you know, these are just a reminder, like, here are the things, you know, that you can ask me for if you need it, that you can do whatever. And I, and not that it, it didn't, make it go away. He still rode the curve, like you said, but I feel like he, and he, this has happened now for probably three years and he's getting better every time, but you know, at least he might remember like one thing or at least try, he tries to do it, even if it like fails miserably. So I think it's important too. I mean, would you agree that teaching them the different coping skills needs to happen beforehand or do you, I mean, I, I guess during you could also, but no, you can't actually during. You can't. In fact, I would say maybe one out of 50 kids will actually hear you without like getting more angry when you say that. What I tell my clients is that you can't actually do this in the moment. You have to do it proactively. And not only do you have to do it proactively, but you have to practice. And the way I explain it is like you're basically like these healthy coping skills are basically like you teaching your child a language that is not natural to them. So imagine you're teaching your child German or Japanese or whatever. You wouldn't teach them, you know, you wouldn't mention German words 20 times and expect them to speak German. You would have to repeat it over and over and over because in the moment of fight or flight, which is what's happening to them in that moment when they're dysregulated, when we're in fight or flight, we actually become all instinct. We can't recall what we learned or we don't care about what we learned. So we have to make this, we have to practice with them enough that it becomes instinct. And I give lots of ways to practice and I can even give you a few right right here, right now, but it has to be proactive. And I've helped thousands of families and I can tell you the key difference between success and failure in this is how often the family practices between times of yuck. Sure. Consistency. I feel like literally across <laughs> any topic, any bore, any, anything yep. that is, yep. that is the biggest thing. So, so yes, will you, will, can you give like maybe one or two things that people could, maybe that's a little more, I don't know, universal or a little more, you know, kind of works yeah, like sure. on a broad let me, scale. Let me just do younger and older because this is, um, I'll do young, medium and, and older because obviously it depends on the age of the child. Perfect. Younger children are easier in certain ways because they'll still do role plays. Um, I would say that stops at about age six or seven, but younger kids will do role plays. So you want to role play with them and, and younger kids like it when, you know, first they're the child as usual and you're the adult and then they get to be the adult and tell you what to do as the child. That can be really helpful. So doing role plays is one way to practice. Obviously older kids aren't going to do that. So one of the things I do like mid age, I would say seven to like 11 is, um, do something where you're watching movies or reading books where characters handle feelings well and don't, and do something like this kind of ages me a little bit, but like I used to watch American Idol and you know, they're judges in American Idol and you and your children be the judge and talk about, did people handle their emotions? Well, what could they have done differently? What could they have done better? And kids love judging, you know, other people and saying what they could have done better. 
Sure. Um, so that's kind of middle age is really a, a really good technique. And then for older kids, for teenagers, the best way to do this with teenagers is actually to tell a teenager that you are working on your skills and have them coach you rather than vice versa. So it's not you saying to them, okay, we're going to practice this because a teen would never do that. It's saying, hey, I am going to try to calm down. I need help being reminded what I'm supposed to do and to practice it. Can you remind me and be in charge of this? And they're much more likely to want to tell you what to do. Oh, I love that. And I feel like with Gen Z, um, a lot of the research just coming back with Gen Z is like, listen, I don't need you to be like a perfect parent. I need you to be authentic. And like, I need you to be vulnerable and see that where um, maybe in the past generations, that's not what's been so, I don't even know what, um, praised, I guess. And so, especially if you're raising a Gen Z kiddo, I feel like they're really just looking for you to be authentic, that you are not perfect and that whatever. And yeah, I feel like just helping in general. And I think it's really important too to broaden our vocabulary around our feelings. Like we're not just mad or sad. There's yeah. jealous and there's, you know, like I feel like I uh maybe even after our conversation or um I don't know. I I remember starting to open our or my children's kind of uh knowledge base of what feelings are. Cuz sure, when they're like two, you know, you're mad, you're sad, you're happy, whatever. But I'm like giving them language for what they're actually feeling. Cause I remember one of my kids saying like, my gosh, I'm so mad at him right now. I'm like, I don't think you're mad. I think you're really jealous of him because he Mm -hmm. got, you know what I mean? And so just like, and so then I feel like you handle something differently when you're jealous than when you're mad, than when you're, you know, whatever. Very true. Is that something that you teach on? Like a hundred percent. Talk about the different types of feelings. Definitely. And I remember as when I was a therapist, um, working even with adults who didn't have the language and starting with literally some adults, I, they would say, I have no idea what I'm feeling. And I'd have to start with, is it positive? Is it negative? And just start that general and then go more and more specific. But you're absolutely right that um, if we understand what we're feeling, remember in the very beginning, I was saying feelings serve a purpose. They're supposed to tell us something. So the way we handle jealousy is different than the way we, we handle anger or sadness or something like that. So we absolutely want to teach them the language. And the other reason we really want to teach them, not just because they can handle it more effectively, but the problem isn't with emotions. It's our fear of emotions that actually causes the problem. And when we start to name it, and I I believe it's Daniel Siegel who wrote the whole brain child that says, name it to tame it. When we start to name our feelings, we, we fear them less. And when you know, I actually teach families to make plans when you feel jealous here's how you deal with it. So when you know what you're feeling and you know how to handle it, feelings are so much less scary. They're not scary when we see them in our children and they're not scary when we have them. But a lot of people are simply scared of their feelings because we don't know how to handle them. Yes. And I feel like, honestly, you know, for me, I'm like, I, I feel like I have a very limited – I mean, now I feel like I've I've done enough freaking – I feel like once you become a parent, you start to look into all this crap yes, way more, right. you know? But I'm like, I feel like I would just have these broad emotions like this mad or sad or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm frustrated. That's a big – that's a big one. Stressed yes. out, you know? Um, <laughs> and so I just feel like these big ones. But there's all these different types of things that make you oh, approach yeah. things differently. And I'm like, yeah. man – and so now it makes me really happy when my kids are like, I'm, I'm just feeling, what did my kids say? 
He said, I'm just feeling, maybe it was jealous. Maybe it was, I don't know. It was some different word other than like the mad, sad and yeah. stress. I'm just feeling really jealous right now. And I'm like, okay, well, we can work through that, you know? So I think that's really powerful that you're, that that's something else that you work through just oh, in general. Yeah. And it's, and just to, to your point that you just mentioned, it's so connective, you know, intimacy between human beings can often come from communication and shared, you know, shared experiences. And when we can say, this is how I feel. And someone else can say, yeah, I feel that way too. The bond that is created when two people feel the same thing is amazing. So when you understand your son, you can say, oh my gosh, I understand you. I can help you. We can connect through this. It really is so powerful. Absolutely. So what do we do when, um, I guess if we back up and we talk, we're talking about the parents, which is who you mainly deal with. So if we have grown up with, you know, just this language that is not very, um, I don't even know what the word is. If it is very avoidance related, it's very distracting, whatever. Like how do we start to A, recognize that within ourselves? Like how do we, like how, okay. How do you know when you're just avoiding things by Netflix or you're just enjoying a show? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like for me, I'm like, man, that's like one of my, um, my husband's favorite things, you know, and we put our four boys in bed and we like watch our shows, which I think is fine. Um, but so where is the line between like identifying, okay, I might be avoiding X or, you know what, I'm just spending my leisure time doing this. Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's a pretty simple one to answer in that if you're avoiding, then you are trying to get around something and you're not coming back to it. So avoidance implies that, like, let's say every time your, um, you know, sister calls, you have a bad relationship with your sister. Every time your sister calls, you go watch Netflix afterwards and you never really talk to your sister about what's going on. That's probably an avoidance or a numbing behavior mm-hmm. versus just going to watch because you want to. And it has nothing to do with you not wanting to deal with your sister later. So right. avoidance implies that you're trying to get away from something that you're not going to go back to. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, and then, so how do we start to change? So let's just say that we, you know, notice an avoiding or a distracting behavior. How do we, A, kind of like stop that behavior? And then how do we start to learn about different coping skills? Because I feel like there's probably, this is connected somewhat to habits, I'm assuming, where we're like adding something positive before we take something away or yes. trying to take whatever. So what does that kind of, what does that first small couple steps start to look like? So the first step is just to even realize that I hate to say it because that's such a psychology thing to say, just you have to be aware. The first step is awareness, but you really do want to start to be aware of um, when are you avoiding and the way you know that is if these issues keep coming up, like for example, your sister or, you know, you're, you're constantly not setting boundaries with your kids or something that just keeps coming up. I actually, in my practice, have people do yuck dumps where they talk about what's frustrating and stressing them out. And when you start to see patterns in your yuck dumps, that's when you know you're probably avoiding something. So being aware and then very honestly recognizing that when you're in those situations, you are also traveling that yuck curve and that that feeling will go away. And what you do while you're in that discomfort is really what you will regret or cope in a healthy way with. So if you um, you know don't want to have a conversation with your sister if you, when you start to have that conversation, realize that uncomfortable feelings are going to come up and how you deal with those uncomfortable feelings. Do you say to your sister, well, forget it. I don't want to talk anymore and hang up, which is more avoidance, which is a coping mechanism. Or Mm -hmm. do you say, okay, this is uncomfortable. I can handle this. I can breathe my way through it. You know, 
you have to kind of recognize when you're in these uncomfortable situations that what you're doing is coping and you want to choose ahead of time a healthy coping mechanism versus an unhealthy one that you'll probably naturally default into. Right. And again, with the deciding ahead of time, before I make this phone call, let me just figure out what the heck I'm going to do. And so um, you talked about, you just said something with boundaries, like keeping boundaries or not having boundaries with your kids or whatever. So I think a big question um, with parenting, okay, when we have kids with big emotions, I have one (laughs) I'm dealing with right now, Um, but it's, it's very impulsive language. It's very, that that's very negative. Um, also very impulsive physically. And so I think, you know, can you talk about kind of holding that line between, um, you know, we want to obviously like show up and not enter into the crazy with our children, but at the same time, especially if your kid has siblings, it's like, man, all of his siblings are seeing him say this, Mm -hmm. act like this, or Mm -hmm. might honestly be a physical, um, recipient of mm-hmm. a smack or a punch or a push or whatever else. And so like, you know, how do we, how do we sit with them kind of in their emotions, let them ride the curb and all these things with also kind of like setting a, I don't even know boundaries, the right word. Like there has to be an expectation. Like you can't say that <laughs> or like you can't yeah. do that. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I guess they're coping negatively and it's just teaching them how to do something different, but I feel like that's always the balance where I'm like, I'm pretty good at keeping myself calm. I mean, I have a ton of training and trauma and behavior and, you know, all kinds of stuff. But then I feel like there's always some level and maybe it's when they hit their peak where I'm like, okay, this is, (laughs) we're done. (laughs) And maybe I screw the whole thing up at that point. But typically it's like, I feel like they've crossed some kind of line that I'm not okay with, with either myself or the other children. So how do we like balance that? Yeah, that's a good question. I actually did a a podcast episode myself on this topic. How do we, when kids don't have the skills yet, how do we not let them get away with it? Because that's what I always hear is, well, but then aren't we letting them get away with it, which is such a big fear of ours. So I just did an episode on this. And here's what I will say is that obviously boundaries are important and physical boundaries. I mean, it's not okay for a child to hurt you or their siblings or anything like that. Um, So creating a, a plan for physical boundaries and separation is really, really important. I do think, though, we have to set the expectations that in our own mind, that if a child is acting out that much, there's a whole lot of yuck inside of them. And that we we have to be realistic about, you know, you can't just say, well, I don't want to hear that word. So you need to stop right now. It's just right. not realistic. So I say in that in those circumstances, we really need to be working on coping skills for them, because the way we not let them get away with it is we're going to be working on these coping skills pretty intensively until you get them because this is not okay. And very honestly, when kids, I I would call this a consequence in itself. When we are constantly talking about it and revisiting it until we see different behavior, kids don't, this is, this is one of the forms of quote unquote punishment I use in my house is I'll say, we're going to have a conversation about this until the behavior changes. We're going to be focusing on all these tools for you. We're going to be practicing them. And they don't really want to do that. Very honestly, they kind of want to be done with it, but we do have to be a little bit realistic that the level of yuck that you see is either them manipulating you, very honestly, and even that is a symptom of yuck, or it's, um, you know, they really don't have the skills. They really don't have the tools. So a boundary to me is a, first a safety plan, for sure. And then it's really about, you can say, if you talk to me like that, I will walk away, but you can't control another human being. You just can't. As much as we want to, you can't. 
what you can do is give them the tools to be successful. That's really good to remember. I mean, that's so simple. <laughs> it's really we- simple, but you know, like it's, and I, like I have a kid who, um, oh man, sweet as can be, however, is my, is my one child who is very impulsive verbally and physically. And he is my one kid that will like scream, I hate you. Yeah. Not often, but it comes out it, over like, to me, something very minor, like I don't know, whatever. I'm not going to think of an example, but like not even a big thing. It's like, where did that even come from? Typically is what's like in my mind. Um, but then my two-year-old, I asked my two-year-old the other day, like, hey, can you go put your shoes away? And he just said, mommy, I hate you. I'm like, hold on a second. <laughs> this yeah. is not okay. But he's hearing his brother yes. say that. You know what I mean? When his brother is experiencing some kind of distress or whatever, you right. know. Um, and so now I'm like, man, don't well, say that. <laughs> I actually really encourage every single family that I work with to every member of the family learn about what yuck is. And, and especially if you have a sensitive child, which I would argue almost every family has at least one. Um, sure. I, I certainly do. I have a sensitive child. Um, if you, if you have a sensitive child, everybody else needs to understand it because yes, yeah, siblings will see, well, why do they, why, why is that? Okay. It's not okay. But we're, what we're working on is coping skills. We're working on finding different ways to deal with this. And often siblings of kids with big emotions really do need to understand what's going on. Otherwise, they get scared by their sibling. And we don't want that. We just want to help them understand what's going on for sure. Right. Well, or they get scared or they feel like, why? Do, how is he able to say that? Or how is he able to do that? And I, you know what I mean? Because my other kid, I can like look at them and a certain look and they're like, okay, mm-hmm. I'm done. Where this kid is like, look at me like that. And I will literally like <laughs> freak right. out. And, um, and that's a testament to, we also have to teach our kids that things are not equal, that everyone in this family gets what they need, not what everyone else gets. So that's another another lesson I think is really, really important is that different kids need different things and we're not always comparing you to each other. Exactly. Um, and with this kid, um, I'm learning so much about sensory and oh, yeah. um, like just even just sensory needs just in general. And so, yeah. I mean, yes, it's everything that we've talked about today, but it's funny. It's I, We were homeschooling our four boys this year. And I mean, it's been a lot, but at the same time, it's been so good for me because I'm like with them 24 seven. And with this child specifically, I'm like, oh, okay. I'm seeing this over here. I'm seeing this when this happens. And I've started to kind of piece this stuff together. And I think absolutely the coping skills and all these things, but then I'm like, this might be very sensory driven and just this regulation of it's hard for him just to be sometimes because he's, um, what's the word? Dysregulated? Dysregulated. Yep. Okay. Um, you know, sensory wise. So we actually, I was actually talking to Dr. Laura Foyan, um, not that long ago and she was talking about OT and we are starting OT and it's only, it's like a four month program. Um, but it's all about him helping himself regulate, which I think is going to the domino, right? Like we're trying to find that beginning domino. So if he feels overwhelmed in his own body just by like chilling, yes. then of course, like when there's some kind of rub or tension between him and his siblings or him and me or whatever it might be, it's like some other kids who, you know, don't have some kind of sensory need or um, dysregulation or whatever might still have the mental capacity to be able to handle that in a, in a socially appropriate way where a kiddo who is struggling sensory wise might already be like worn down by just being. So I call sensory needs biological yuck. It's this, it's the same concept that when they are overwhelmed or underwhelmed with their senses, 
they're still in yuck. They're still in fight or flight. And that goes back to, well, how come my brother or sister can get away with that? Well, if your brother or sister had dyslexia, they'd have a special reading tutor. It wouldn't be letting them get away with anything. It's just we need to teach kids that every child is different and absolutely sensitive kids emotionally almost always inevitably also have some sort of sensory dysregulation, um, some sensory issue as well in that in that sense. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I've been so like, I mean, and I'm a special education teacher, so I've been in the world with OT, PT, speech, yes. you know, the whole nine. And I never thought to correlate those two. Oh, it was yes. like OT and sensory. I mean, I guess I like behavior I know, you know, like I've dealt with kids with severe autism, you know, all that kind of stuff. But to me, just like, you know, it doesn't seem like like I guess, I guess my um, in my brain, it didn't seem like my kid just hanging out, watching a show, building Legos, whatever. That he could be being drained. Yes. Do you know what? Like that's and so that was really eye opening to me. And when I sat down with an OT, I'm like, honestly, I have no idea if I should even be here. But here's what I'm seeing. And they're like, oh, absolutely, you absolutely 100 need to be here. Yeah. And I'm like, I refer oh. about I would say 80 percent of my clients to an OT. Really? Okay. Yeah. See, I'm I'm actually working on talking or I'm talking with an OT right now. I'm trying to get her on the podcast to talk about this exact thing because I think it's looked over so much, you know? Yeah, um, no, it's it's definitely a lot of the um sensory seeking like coping skills, like a child is hitting, a child uh, is pushing, a child is wrestling, all of these look like misbehavior, but they're actually sensory issues. Yes. Yeah. And okay, my mind blowing because yeah. for me, I'm like, I feel like with dealing with um, you know, dealing, teaching, whatever with kids with disabilities, typically there's always kind of in the back of your mind, do they need OT? Do they need PT? Do they need speech? Do they need what do all these things? But when your kid maybe does not have a diagnosed um disability, thinking about like OT or PT or whatever mm-hmm. might seem like not even like it might not even cross your mind. So Something yes. to think about, people. <laughs> I'm glad you said that because almost, in, in, like I said, in almost every instance, there's some, there's an overlap. Yep. Yes. Yep. So, okay. So, can you, can we wrap up just by, do you have any, like, I don't know, maybe like your top one to two resources um, on this topic? I will link to your podcast in the show notes. And then, kind of, if you want to wrap up by telling people where they can find you, I think that'll be really helpful. Yeah, I mean, I, I think D- Daniel Siegel's books are really great for this. He does talk a lot about emotional regulation. Um, he has something called the Yes, I forget what it is, something about Yes in the title, where he talks about how when a child is dysregulated, they can't actually meet their full potential. I talk about that with when a child is in yuck, they can't have positive behavior, moods, or attitudes. So Daniel Siegel is a great resource for that. I go to him for a lot um, of what I learn of what I teach. And then um, as far as I would just say one more thing too about this topic, if I can, and then I'll tell you where you can find me. But um, I love Brene Brown, who is, uh, if I could talk about her all day, every day, I would. And one of the things I learned in her early work, actually, um, because I studied her early work a lot before she became super duper famous. She says, we can't selectively numb emotions. So we want to numb the hard ones. We want our kids to numb. And we talk, We started by talking about distractions. If our kids can't feel the hard things, they also can't feel the joy and the happiness. We mm-hmm. cannot selectively numb. We need to teach kids that feelings are not something we need to distract from. They're not scary. They're not bad. That when we actually let them happen, they teach us something. There's another... Um, Glennon Doyle is another person who, in her old work, she used to say, just see pain as a teacher. It is meant to tell you something. And when we listen to our emotions and stop fearing them, we actually gain so much knowledge. 
So those are some people that, again, these are kind of early work of these people that you can also turn to as resources. I love that. Well, and I, you had, um, had just said something, what was it from Brene Brown or from that you can't, the kid can't reach its full potential. Yes. Yeah. What what was that that you just said? So that was that from my perspective, I teach that when someone is in yuck and especially when they have a mountain of yuck, because we haven't let them feel their yuck, that they can't have positive behavior, moods or attitudes. Well, I just, as you were saying that I, so my kid that I'm, that I'm working with this through, um, he has no, has had no interest in academics at all. Um, and has really struggled with academics and even like, he doesn't even like to color, which is another thing that I figured out sensory wise and, and bone strength wise and muscle tone and whatever else. But, you know, academically he just really did not want to focus on all of that. And I remember talking to my OT last week and, you know, she's like, honestly, like he may need to have some sensory needs that he needs to fulfill before he can even sit down and focus on how to learn <laughs> the ABCs or letter sounds or whatever else. And so that was really eye-opening too, because it's like, that was my first kiddo and I'm a teacher, you know, I'm yeah. like, I, like, I got all, I got all the, and I'm a, and I'm a special ed teacher. I'm like, differentiation, differentiation is like my job. <laughs> this is what I do. Like I can yeah. reach all kinds of different kids, but then I'm like, man, he just has like no interest. And then I'm starting to learn about the sensory stuff. And they're like, yeah, like he may not be able to just sit and learn until we get this figured out. So it's just so important to just really, you know, we know, we know our kids best. So if there's something off, like, (laughs) I feel like that's, you know, just really helpful to, to know just in general. Absolutely. Absolutely. So where can people find you? So I have a podcast called um, Your Parenting Long Game, and that's probably the best place to get some quick tips and action, you know, suggested actions. Um, I also have a Facebook group called Your Parenting Long Game Podcast Community, and I go live in there with lots of tips and answer questions and share like behind the scenes about my podcast. Um, my website is rachel-bailey.com. And then I'm also just, I'm, I'm on Instagram, but not as much as I would like, but I am there at Rachel Bailey Parenting. All right. Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for coming on again and sharing your wisdom. I love this conversation and taking all kinds of stuff away from it. I'm so glad. Thank you for having me here again. I really appreciate it. Okay. So my biggest takeaway from Rachel today was about just narrating what happens to our children, not overselling or underselling, just stating what happened. So that is incredibly simple. And such an easy quote unquote fix, I guess, to start making in our day-to-day parenting, you know, choices. And not that we're going to follow them around and be like a freaking narrator for their life, but if we can do it one or two or even three times a day to start, then that's all that matters. Like this is the 1% better every single day. I talk about so much. We don't need to revamp our entire parenting strategy today, but this is something simple to do and simple to remember, which is almost more important. So I encourage all of you guys to start this at home with your littles, with your teenagers, with your adult children, and don't forget to head over to episode 41 of this podcast as Rachel helps us through the difference between punishment and discipline in another episode. And so I hope you guys all had a wonderful, wonderful Mother's Day yesterday, and I hope you have a great week ahead. I look forward to walking with you to help you find your grit while completely covering you in grace.